Welcome to the Policy Leadership Series podcast, new from Resources for the Future. Every month, leading global decision makers speak to RFF President and CEO Richard Newell about big environmental and energy policy issues. In this episode, Richard speaks to international energy expert and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Daniel Jurgen. The conversation took place on October 2nd. I'm really delighted today to be joined by Dr. Daniel Jurgen. Dr. Jurgen is one of the foremost thinkers in the world on energy. He's the vice chair of IHS Market, where he co-founded Cambridge Energy Research Associates. And he also chairs the Global Zero Week Energy Conference, which many of us have attended. Dr. Jurgen is also the author of several renowned books examining the complex relationship between global energy and politics, including the prize, the epic quest for oil, money, and power. The prize won Dan the Pulitzer Prize in 1992. It also became a documentary series watched by millions of people on PBS. His most recent book is called The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Thanks again for joining us, Dan. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be here. I know that resources for the future goes back to really President Truman and President Eisenhower and Ever since, it's made a huge contribution to understanding, as you said, resources, energy, how these things put together. And certainly all of us who are in the field look to resources for the future today for its insights and its analysis. Thanks so much, Dan. So you're known around the world as one of the foremost global thinkers on energy. But your background is actually in English and international history. You have a BA from Yale and a PhD in international relations from Cambridge University, where you were a Marshall Scholar. So I'd be interested to hear about how you first became interested in energy and how this disciplinary background, how has that influenced your global energy work over the decades? Thank you. I mean, as one looks back on one's career, you think there's a logic to it, but you realize it's like one thing leads to another. So as an undergraduate, I did history economics, but I also did English literature and in particular the 19th century novel. And I think it's always given me an ongoing interest in storytelling as a way to communicate things and engage people. And then I did a PhD in international history and international relations at Cambridge. But at that point, I also did work on economic history. And I think in a way, I see myself as an economic historian. I've always been, you know, if I look at the work I've done, it's really a blend of those different things. And then energy, you know, one of these accidents, I had a two-year postdoc at Harvard after my PhD and no one was supervising me. And so I could kind of do what I wanted. (laughs) And I just became obsessed with energy and then became involved with the International Energy Seminar at Harvard. And then out of the blue, had a job at the Harvard Business School where we became part of an energy project. And kind of that was the course that launched me to where I am today. And I set up our original company the same year I started writing the prize, which I look back on as also thought was a little insane, but I guess I could say it all worked out. Yeah, I think it did. So that's really interesting. I actually didn't know that history, some of those parts. So earlier I mentioned the prize, which was your celebrated account of the history of the global oil industry, which if you can believe it was published in the early 1990s. I'm wondering, as you look back at the last 30 years of energy, what surprised you the most? Well, the other day I came across a phrase, actually my wife told me, because she works on Russia, 
that Vladimir Putin has this phrase, the dog barked and the caravan moved on. And in a sense, the caravan has really moved on in terms of energy. So I look back at the prize, China's hardly in it. Climate is not an issue. In fact, I was thinking the first time Joe Biden ran for the presidency, climate was not an issue. And the sense was that the U.S. was going to be an importer of ever more oil. And whatever happened in the Middle East was going to determine the fate of the world. And I think that was the sense because the book came out, came the Gulf War, where who would control the oil in the Gulf was really central. So those are some of the things that have changed since the prize. Yeah, the energy system moves slow on the one hand, but then as you look back, things do change, and in some cases significantly. So in 2012, another one of your great books, The Quest, was published. So that's only eight years ago? Yeah. So what's changed since then? I think at that point, I got just the beginning of the impact of the shale revolution. But I think the things that have changed, so certainly the shale revolution, which has been so disruptive technology. The other thing that changed is I got really interested, kind of where did the modern solar industry come from? Where did the modern wind industry come from? And they went back to the 1970s. And one of the two places for the first solar companies was actually Exxon. And another was two scientists who had both emigrated to the United States. And the time the quest came out, you were just about to see those two industries mature at the, about the age of 40. They were finally reached, let's put it, adulthood. But what's happened since then is that the cost of those two, particularly solar, has come down so dramatically. So I think, and of course, the growth of renewables still small in the overall energy mix. So I see that as a big change. I think the third thing, you know, I'd go back to China again. Because in that book, at that time, people still thought there was going to be a zero-sum game, a struggle between China and the United States for who was going to have access to world oil. And I said, there's a lot of interdependence here, and there's still a lot of interdependence. There's no longer that sense of a zero-sum game because of what's happened with shale. But the other side of it is that the kind of interdependence is now being offset by the growing tension in the relationship between the United States and China. So I think that's another big change. All those really important issues. And, you know, as I think back to, uh, you know, at the Department of Energy in around 2008 to 2010, people were starting to understand the shale gas boom. Um, at that point, um, you know, shale oil really wasn't, it was kind of right. people were starting to have a sense about maybe there's be some application. There was kind of the dollar a watt solar. And it's amazing how really after that period of the last decade, those two things in particular. Yeah. have. So I think we have a shale revolution and solar revolution. Richard, which were the years that you ran the Energy Information Administration? It was 2009 to 11, and so I remember that time really well. I actually remember talking to somebody at a Zero Week conference about the application of shale gas to shale oil. This is probably around 2010, and numbers started coming out about how maybe it would be like add a few million barrels per day. The U.S. at that point was, I think, at maybe five, six million barrels a day. Yeah, that's right. Really, that's right. Yeah, and yeah, nobody, well, I can't say nobody expected. There were some very precious well, people. Who but I think even it. then when it occurred, I think people didn't see the full scale of just how, even the people who were, saw it didn't realize it. But you're right. First it was gas, and one saw that 2008 was the first time that gas output went up, and that was like a signal. But oil was later. And in both cases, the role of individuals really jumps out here, people who are just determined, obsessive, and stubborn, and are very important in terms of creating it. Because the general thing was first that shale gas couldn't work, 
because you couldn't get stuff out of shale. It took about 18 years to demonstrate you could do that. And one obsessive person, George Mitchell down in Texas, because he had a gas contract for Chicago. He had a facility, needed gas. There had to be a way to do this. But people then said, well, okay, it works for gas. Gas can flow through the fractures, but not oil. And there's a guy named Mark Papa we write about who said, well, we're going to have a gas flood. We better get out of gas and get into oil. And people said, well, the oil molecules are too big. And I, I love the way he tells the story. He said, well, let's go look it up. And they looked it up and they couldn't find anywhere. What's the size of an oil molecule? And eventually they found out how much bigger it was than a gas molecule. And it turned out that that worked. And so it was only in kind of 2008, 2009 that the first sense of this, just as the time you said that there's a sense, well, maybe this is going to affect oil too. But I don't think anybody imagined that the U.S. by February of 2020 would be not only the largest oil producer in the world, it'd be producing 13 million barrels a day, as opposed to that 5 million that you had talked about. I want to come back in a minute and, and, and pursue that further. I want to jump to one aside for just a second, which is just kind of bring us right to the present day. And, you know, we're in an extraordinary time in our history. It's a potential inflection point for huge industries and sectors of the economy. Some of that hopefully is, is passing. You know, if we just look at the upcoming presidential election, one question is how consequential do you think November's election will be for the future of U.S. energy policy, and in particular the oil and gas industry? I think this will be very consequential depending on the outcome. Obviously, Joe Biden has a $2 trillion climate plan. Climate will be, I think, a major theme, not just running through all departments. And there will be the question of what happens to this position that the United States is in, in terms of oil and gas, will essentially go down two avenues or one avenue. And I think that you do look at 12.3 million jobs before COVID, the impact it's had on the balance of payments. You look at a state like New Mexico, 40% of its budget comes from leasing from oil and gas leases. And in terms of what it means for manufacturing, over $200 billion of investment in factories in the United States, and what it's done for our foreign policy. I kind of two thoughts. Joe Biden was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and recognizes that in a way that maybe many Americans don't, that this has had a big foreign policy impact too. And I think that if you have severe restrictions on the industry, then it really becomes an important more policy. And you wouldn't want to be president, I don't think, and preside over the most rapid increase in oil imports. So I think there'll be a huge focus on climate. I think that there'll be more regulation on oil and gas. And what I think is really bipartisan is continuing the research in basic science, the six and a half billion dollars that DOE now spends, which is to give us the technologies we need for the future. And I guess I would say, obviously, Donald Trump doesn't have a $2 trillion climate plan. Yeah, agreed. Pretty big contrast on the energy and environmental front in the upcoming election. So I want to turn now to your most recent book. It's called The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Class of Nations. In that book, you explore what you call the new map in global energy and in geopolitics. And I'm wondering, how did you arrive at that framing? Why a new map? Well, it started off just looking at the flows of energy that were going on because of shale, how the map of U.S. energy was changing the direction oil and gas were flowing, looking at the global LNG market, looking at the new map of renewables. So all of those things were there in a kind of literal way. And then it really became a metaphor for describing this kind of new world of 
the interaction of energy and geopolitics and the sense of that the book is, provides a framework, a guide for how to think about how this world is changing and where it's going and how all these things are interacting. So that's how I came up with the idea of calling it the new map. In reading the book, as you get into it, it provides a really interesting and provocative framing for the overall discussion. So early in the new map, you go back to the late 1990s, and you alluded to this a bit earlier, Dan, and you tell the story of SH Griffin Number 4, which was a natural gas well drilled by uh, Mitchell Energy uh, in a small town in Texas. And you write about how in that drilling, they're doing something, and I'm going to quote you here, something that petroleum engineering textbook said was impossible, which is namely cracking the code for extracting natural gas from dense shale rock in a way that was not only technically, but also commercially viable. So tell us a bit about the trajectory of that, that well created and why it is so central to the new global energy map. Particularly well, it is just a, um, you know, you go out and look at it today, it's just a little sort of wire fenced enclosed thing. There's some houses nearby and so forth in a town called Dish, Texas, near another town called Ponder, Texas. And it was like the last throw of the dice. We've been working for 17 or 18 years to try and figure out how to do this. And, you know, this is a kind of accident of history. The kind of project manager happened to go to a baseball game in Dallas and happened to meet some guys who were using different technique of fracking in another part of Texas, not in fail, and let's try it here. And lo and behold, wow, it works. And that was the beginning. But it still took another five years to yoke that technology to horizontal drilling, which is really the way to penetrate two miles underground in a horizontal fashion. And that came together in the summer of 2003. And I remember being with a big study that was being finalized at that time about how the U.S. was going to become the world's largest importer of liquefied natural gas. That was happening at the same time these guys in 100-degree weather were drilling these wells, and finally it worked. It clicked. But it was still slow. Oh, this is just things that kind of independents do that's not serious. But then suddenly you started to see the volumes going up. And then, of course, on oil it went up. And suddenly the U.S. had become number one gas producer in the world, overtaking Russia, and also the world's largest producer of oil. I have a chapter in the book called The Plague. By the way, I only finished this book in July. I didn't really finish it. They took it away from me. So I have to explain that that's what actually happened. And about in April, when oil prices went negative, as a result of what I call in the book, the economic dark age that descended as a result of COVID. And out of that, it was really the United States that brought Saudi Arabia and Russia, who were fighting with each other in the oil market together, and it demonstrated the big three, and it demonstrated the influence and impact of the United States. So you mentioned Russia. Maybe say a little bit about China and Russia and how have their energy maps changed? This is really interesting. There are a lot of forces at work. There's a wonderful picture in the book of Putin and Xi Jinping wearing aprons together, making pancakes. And Putin is showing Xi Jinping how you make these Russian pancakes that are called blini. And the caption is pancake diplomacy. But at the same time, Chinese troops were for the first time participating in this huge Russian military exercise. You know, the master chef, Vladimir Putin, showing Xi Jinping how to make it. But at the same time, the troops, and so they have come much closer together for many reasons. They both believe in absolute sovereignty. I was at one conference last year where Putin kind of said to Xi Jinping, 
you know, I apologize. I kept you up till 4 a.m. talking. And Xi Jinping said, it's okay. We never have enough time to talk. And we know one thing they talk about is their antipathy to an international system led by the United States. Uh, we also uh, know that they talk about energy and that that is a very important part of their relationship. Not completely, but I do say that a relationship that was once based upon Marx and Lenin is now based on oil and gas because Russia has become a big supplier to China of energy. And energy is very important to China, which is now sort of in a position the United States was 10 or 12 years ago. It imports 75% of its oil, and China regards that as a big strategic problem. So that relationship, Russia selling weapons to China, they've gotten closer and closer, and that's one of the big geopolitical changes. And you can also trace it out on the map in terms of the flow of energy supplies. Yet, if you look at China's import of almost all forms of certainly traditional energy, but in particular oil, their import dependence is well beyond what we ever had in the United States. And so you yes. understand how that influences their thinking. So to focus a little bit on China and China and the U.S., so you know, are we headed into a Cold War with China? I worry about that. Richard, as you mentioned previous books, and one book builds upon the other. My first book was on the origins of the Soviet-American Cold War. And that was a Cold War that was based on ideology and nuclear weapons. And I think I could say I never expected to be writing another book about origins of Cold War, but you certainly see us moving in that direction. Richard, as you know, here in Washington, there are very few things that Republicans and Democrats agree on. One thing that really is quite striking, and this really precedes President Trump, is this sense that China is no longer a partner. Previous presidents talked about constructive relationship with a change in China or positive engagement. Now the term you hear is strategic rival, great power competition. In the new map, I quote some of the Chinese military documents, and they say the same thing. That's a big change for two countries that happen to be the two biggest economies in the world, that happen to be very interconnected, and both of them deeply embedded in the world economies. Henry Kissinger talked about being in the foothills of the new Cold War. I think it's something of concern, and I think it's going to be the big kind of geopolitical question to deal with, and it has big economic implications because U.S. and China are much more integrated than people know. I think General Motors sells more cars in China than it does in the United States, and I think if people look in their 401k plans, they'll see that they own Chinese equities as part of assuring their retirements. So this is a very different kind of competition because the Soviet Union was hardly a factor in the world economy, and that's a very different thing. And Richard, if I can add one other thing that really strikes me, is I hear from other countries when I was traveling and just in conversations with them, whether in Asia, whether in the Middle East, whether in Latin America, is that we don't want to have to choose. Don't put us in position to have to choose. We've seen that with this issues over technology like Huawei, but this is one place where we really need a new map because this is pretty risky terrain to be in. And there's some destinations we don't want to end up in. Yeah, that framing of not making us choose is very compelling and just shows you the benefits of cooperation and collaboration wherever that's possible. So I want to turn now again to the issue of not transition so much in geopolitical relationships, but in energy and energy technologies. And so if you look back on the past century, there's been maybe some types of transitions, but if you look at an aggregate level and at the world as a whole, what we've really seen is a lot of energy addition. We've seen while shares of energy change, 
We use more biomass, we use more coal, we use more oil, we use more natural gas, nuclear, and now renewables, huge growth in renewables. But what we've tended to see so far, at least at a, at a, at a global level, is energy addition, one kind of stacking on top of the other. Now, of course, particularly from a climate point of view, there's many people are interested in an energy transition that isn't just kind of adding on top, you know, what the environment cares for. And also what most companies care for is like the absolute amount of energy. And you write about this in your book about energy transitions. Are we at the frontier of a possible major energy transition? And you have thoughts about where we are in that, what does that depend upon, and how does it influence the energy industry and also potentially geopolitics? Well, I try to, in the new map, look at a framework for thinking about energy transition, because the phrase is thrown around a lot. But as you say, if you look at the numbers, it's energy addition so far. And the second thing is, if you look at the numbers, the U.S. CO2 emissions are down to the levels, I think it's now the early 1990s, our economy has doubled, and that's largely because one energy source, gas, has replaced coal in generation. So it's a more complicated thing. And sometimes I want to make this book a very lively book, a narrative book, but sometimes I go down rabbit holes too. And so I wanted to go back and say, when did the energy transition really begin? And you could say, well, they were burning wood in London in the 13th and 14th century. But I think I picked out a date of January 1709 when a metal worker in a village in Shropshire in England figured out that you could make better iron using coal rather than wood. But then it took two centuries until coal became half of the world's energy supply. And so you see this long time, oil discovered in 1859 doesn't become a dominant until the 1960s. But we live in a different era. We have technology, we have money, we have know-how. Wind and solar are not 10 years old, they're 50 years old. So the question is the speed. And the view that I take in the book, and this is really an engagement in an ongoing dialogue and a discussion, but it seems to me that it's still based on everything, particularly not just generalizing from the US, North Canada and Europe, but from the world, the world oil demand probably actually continues to grow until the 2030s or so, the first part of the 2030s, and then begins to decline just by looking at the numbers. There are 280 million cars in the United States, but we're going to see more electric cars. Electric utilities in the United States are, most of them are very committed to moving towards wind and solar, and you see that shift in investment going on. But I think it takes time to happen. And I think we also need technologies. One of the other people you had in this series was Ernie Moniz, the former energy secretary, and we did this study for Bill Gates Foundation, Breakthrough Energy Coalition, about the technologies we don't have. Obviously, one of them is batteries of a different nature, potentially hydrogen, but another one is carbon capture. You go to India, and they talk about indoor air pollution because people are burning wood and animal waste and crop residues, and they want to have a $60 billion project to introduce more natural gas into their economy to have uh, more commercial energy. So I think there's no question that an energy transition is going on and governments are going to push it, a lot of popular opinion behind it, but there is the reality of an $87 trillion world economy and how quickly it can turn. And I think one other question that's out there, Richard, and this is your economist hat, is how deep are the wounds from this COVID crisis and how much flexibility would governments have to spend there as opposed to there? So I tend to think we will be moving into more of a transition. We'll reach a point where it's not just energy addition, but I don't think we're there yet. 
I'm going to bring in a question from the audience member that directly relates to this. And so there's been some major announcements by some oil and gas companies like BP. There's many others. To what extent do you see the energy transition being driven by these existing large companies relative to kind of, uh, let's say, the new guys? Well, it's going to be a mixture. I have a wonderful chapter about the rise of the electric car, where Tesla came from, and how it began at a lunch in a fish restaurant in L.A., J.P. Straubel was trying to convince Elon Musk to do an electric airplane. He says, I'm not interested in that. J.P. Straubel has a succession. What about an electric car? And he says, well, I might be interested in that. So there's individuals, small groups, couldn't have been done probably anywhere other than Silicon Valley. Great deal of ingenuity, creativity, and just sheer determination and grit. So there'll be players like that. On the other side, you know, you have these big companies that have the capability they have deep engineering skill. They are used to working at scale and they know how to execute complex projects. So they'll have a big role in this as well. And I think it's a kind of mixture of the two. And there is between the companies, obviously difference right now, the European companies are very much saying, well, we've got to move to be energy companies and either keep level or bring down our oil and gas business while we develop renewables, while we move into electric power while we do new technology. But one thing I see all the major companies very focused more than I've ever seen it before on new technologies, on startups, on venture capital. These are technology companies at the end of the day and they're looking for the new technologies. One of the things that I recall, uh, particularly um, in, in teaching is there is sometimes an impression among some people that uh, kind of let's call them the incumbents are not as technologically advanced as some of the newer companies. And that's definitely not true. And so I would tend to agree with you that the more that those assets and that capability can be deployed um, in the transition. Yeah, alongside. I mean, yeah. it is, I think it's one of the major companies has more PhDs in science and engineering. I seem to remember that it was something like than Harvard, MIT and Stanford combined. So one thinks of them as just commercial organizations for many people, but at the heart, they're run by people who are very technical. Each episode of RFS Policy Leadership Series podcast is made possible by listeners like you. This series provides thoughtful conversations with leading experts to better connect and inform our community on the latest environmental and economics issues. And you can help us by supporting RFF. You join us in our mission to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economics research and policy engagement. Learn more about contributing to RFF today by visiting rff.org support. So I want to turn back to a moment directly to your book. And there was a really fascinating extract in the book that appeared recently in the Wall Street Journal. And in that, you're talking about the prospect of an energy transition. And you say, I'm going to quote here, China is posed to be the big winner, Russia and the Middle East exporters, the big losers. The U.S. is likely to fall somewhere in between. So talk us through a little bit, you know, why you reached those conclusions. You know, what do you think is fueling China's success and what will ultimately determine whether the U.S. ends up leading the world on energy or following others? 
I think China gets into the winner's circle in two things. One, if it imports less oil, because as we said before, oil is a strategic problem, and China is more aggressively promoting the electric car than anybody else. Half the world's electric cars now are in, not surprisingly, China. The other side is that China has focused on what they call new energies. So it's like 70% of the world's solar panels, lithium-ion battery supply chain, rare earths. They're positioned in all of those things. And so as the world, as you say, makes that shift, they're in a very strong position. It does raise a question, and this is a big research area that I'm helping to lead at IHS Market, is, well, what are these new supply chains going to look like in a net zero carbon world? Because the growth is going to be, under some scenarios, the amount of wind and solar capacity put in is twice all the existing electric generating capacity in the world. So how are these supply chains going to work? And this is where energy transition and geopolitics, which one is there and one is there, that's where they come together right now. But I think China's strong position. Vladimir Putin said that Russia's government's revenues from oil have gone down from like 40% to 30% and that this was good. But of course, they've went down because volumes are down and prices down. And Russia still continues to struggle with diversifying its economy, which they've been talking about for 20 years. Saudi Arabia, too, is obviously its GDP directly and indirectly is so dependent upon oil and it's trying to diversify. Turns out diversification is hard under any circumstances. It's harder when you have COVID. And then it also turns out in order to diversify away from oil, you need a lot of oil revenues. So over decades, they're going to be in trouble. And that's why also Saudi Arabia talks about building up a sovereign wealth fund so they can be in the position of Norway and Abu Dhabi, heavily diversified in the global economy. In the United States, I say it's mixed. Because on the one hand, the U.S. benefits pretty greatly from this shale revolution in the position that the United States is in, a very substantial part of the overall U.S. capital investment over the last 10 or 12 years has been related to this sector. So there's that side. But what I really believe, and goes back to when you were in the EIA, the Department of Energy, the U.S. is enormously gifted with an innovation ecosystem that begins with the national labs, the $6.5 billion that DOE spends in basic science, through universities, the research centers, through startups, through big companies, the ability to innovate, people take chances, success, failure, and no country can match, not even China, the United States, in that kind of capability. We just have to be sure that we continue to put resources into that. Let's build on that a little bit. And there's also several audience questions related to this, the importance of new technologies, innovation, And so I'm wondering, and you talk a bit about this in your book, The New Map, I'm wondering what energy technologies you're watching now, what do you see being consequential? What do you think is also kind of needed to enable an energy transition? Well, some of it is obviously dispersed. It's building technologies, it's efficiency. When I started working on energy at the Harvard Business School, the focus I had was energy efficiency. And I remember people thought we had really radical ideas about it, radical enough to get on the front page of the New York Times. Then it turned out that we become a much more efficient society. So that's dispersed. I think the continuing advance of digitalization, which these seven months under COVID have really accelerated. Batteries to take renewables from intermittent to baseload batteries on a different scale are necessary. Hydrogen has come to the fore 
And I know some of the people watching this have different views of hydrogen and say we've been there before and others think, well, maybe this time, but you certainly see a very deep interest in hydrogen, blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, and making hydrogen with electricity from renewables. And then to go back to it, I think I said before, you gotta have carbon capture. And people are skeptical about it, but it took 40 years for wind and solar to get to where they needed to be. Carbon capture is probably, I don't know, say maybe 10, 15 years of effort. That's an area where we really do need some very important answers. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, the history of, of solar because before we write off things like hydrogen, which is true, we've gone through cycles where there was a lot of attention. Actually, also electric car is another example. And I think many folks said the same thing about solar until the last decade. It took quite a, a lot of effort and a long time for solar PV in particular to really take off. And then things change and all of a sudden it's much, much, much less expensive. Yeah, you wake up suddenly and you say, that's really a big change. You know, your mind gets locked into a mindset by previous experience and then things just keep advancing. And there's sure a lot of people working on the battery questions today. I don't think you mentioned nuclear. Do you talk about, I didn't see if you covered well, nuclear. Well, I think, you know, nuclear is still, I think, about 20% of our electricity. Some nuclear plants are being closed because they're having trouble competing with inexpensive natural gas. They do provide baseload. California could use some extra baseload right now. Depends where you are. Germany shutting down its nuclear by 2022. In the period that it's been shutting it down, China has added more nuclear capacity. So you see China, Russia being the kind of global providers of nuclear. But what really strikes me, and this goes back to that innovation system we have in this country, something like over 60, maybe 62 companies in the United States working on next generation or next next generation of nuclear. And I think given what we've seen in the recent history, people would be really surprised by that. But that means that there are a lot more than 62 people who do think there are other avenues to make nuclear carbon-free electricity part of the mix. It's not by introducing new software because nuclear takes a lot of effort and it takes approval by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to come on stream and so forth but it's kind of more advanced than people actually realize in terms of new technologies. Yeah, yeah, really interesting point. So, so and one of the things that, um, and I'm, I've got a couple audience questions on this, and also, if, you know, the title of the book is, uh, look at, make sure I get it right here, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Class of Nations. And so we haven't focused so much on climate yet in the conversation. And particularly, we focus a lot on the shale gas boom, shale oil, relative to certainly even just 10 years ago, the notion of there being scarcity in fossil fuels, oil and gas in particular, it's turned out very different from that. And even beyond shale gas oil, there's huge potential for other kinds of fossil fuels like methane hydrates and so on. So question, how do we reconcile this with the um, desire also to bring down our emissions of, of carbon dioxide and methane? How do you think about uh, both you know, this energy boom, but also the need to address other very important... Well, I think it's central. So in the new map, you have the advantage, you stand back, you look at something and you see things more clearly than it may have seemed at the time. And I think we have two energy eras in the context of which you're talking. One is before Paris and one is after Paris, after the 2015 Paris Agreement. And again, there's another great photograph in the book of people cheering when the Paris Agreement was announced in December of 2015. 
And I think that only gets more powerful. The EU has said we want to be net zero carbon by 2050. I think that's basically in the Biden plan too. 195 countries signed on to the Paris Agreement. What governments are doing in terms of policy, and Europe has a particularly strong policy on it, in which really it's going to take a stronger hand in the allocation of capital and regulation to try and accelerate what you're talking about. It's become increasingly important to investors in terms of what's called ESG, environment, social, and governance, asking companies how do your strategies comport with the Paris Agreement or the Paris Objective of no more than two degrees or one and a half degrees. So actually, I think that's existing over here and this is existing there. So I think both are existing and that goes back to your question under Biden's presidency, if there is one, the U.S., instead of being absent from the table, will be back at the head of the table on it. That's why these other technologies that we were talking about are important because if you kind of look at the numbers, it's hard to see how you get there today with what we have today. And these other issues of carbon capture, for instance, have to be addressed. Unless something comes that we're just not seeing now that makes a radical difference. In the chapter, The Plague in the book, The Impact of COVID, what is digitalization for what we're doing today? What does that mean for the travel, which is more than half of world oil consumption? So if you think back to the things that in 2011-12 and the quest were not yet obvious, what's not yet obvious today that will make a difference a decade from now? And that's why this is, to slightly borrow a title of Hemingway's book, A Movable Feast, this is a movable story. Two things I want to build on there. One, which is earlier we talked about tensions between the United States and China. One of the very important aspects of the Paris Agreement on Climate was U.S. and Chinese collaboration, really. That was the first time where there was major commitments. In fact, Richard, that was the essential foundation when Xi Jinping and Barack Obama stood in the Great Hall in Beijing and said, we have a deal. That is what made Paris possible. So if we think to the future and the future of U.S.-China relations, do you have thoughts on the role of climate in that, particularly between U.S. Yeah. and China? Yeah, Xi Jinping said that China intends to be zero carbon by 2060. That's a big challenge since that's an economy that today is almost 60% based upon coal. So 2060 is farther away than 2050. So clearly they have an extra 10 years for that. I think that goes to a larger question, which is kind of a breakdown of sort of a, a global community uh, that you need. Climate is one issue, but look at COVID-19. You have not seen international collaboration. You've seen international, beyond competition, contention over it. Yeah. And yet it's a global problem that needed to be addressed globally. So I think climate's at the top of the list, but there are other issues. There'll be world trade issues that are going to be harder to deal with. And uh, to paraphrase Deng Xiaoping, about Hong Kong, now overtaken by events, he said, one country, two systems. Are we moving to a global economy, which will be one world, two systems, in terms of technology, in terms of finance and other things? And yet for dealing with issues like climate, you really do need global cooperation. And I think historically, to look at the Paris Agreement, that's a pretty astonishing achievement to have 195 nations come around to sign on to something like that. That's a huge achievement. Yeah, one of the other things that you mentioned as that being a turning point is not only at the national level, well, it's subnational in the United States at least, and um, and also corporate. I mean, you know, you, know, you mentioned earlier the, the number of 
of uh, corporate commitments that are aligned there. And um, just, you also mentioned the financial community. Um, we just yesterday had a, a, a great event with um, uh, uh, Commissioner Benham from the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and, and Bob Litterman and uh, another other great folks from, from City and from uh, Bloomberg LP. And the, 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 co the conversation was around uh, climate risks in US financial markets. And so the, the, the tension also of the financial community and investing community around this issue has, I think, changed dramatically even in just the last three years. Yeah, I think even in the last year, I'm struck about how fast it's changed. And that's a very important point. You know, one of the European-based companies, of course, is based in the United States too, Shell, has also announced it's moving to be an energy company rather than just oil and gas. And I, when I did one of those Syria conversations with uh, the CEO, Ben Van Buren, he has this phrase that he talks about in step with society. And I think that means in step with investors, with governments, as well as with popular public opinion. And I think those factors are, you know, have come together. And, you know, that's why you're seeing uh, some of those companies really trying to kind of redefine their, not their DNA, but at least their character. You mentioned a little bit ago, you know, our anticipation or maybe lack of ability to anticipate unexpected things. And certainly the coronavirus pandemic has been one of those, you know, the developments like the collapse of the U.S. airline industry, you know, negative U.S. oil prices. So as with previous economic crisis and forecasting models and energy projections, I really didn't anticipate, well, didn't anticipate the crisis, really nor the kind of depth of the, the potentiality of it. So how do you, or maybe your colleagues at IHS, what have you learned from these recent crises? And how do you just more generally think about planning for the unexpected? First, let me say, I mean, one of the things I've always been interested in is when you wear your historian hat, things happen that aren't expected, and then you explain why they happened, you know, the logic of it. And in the plague chapter, why was there no anticipation, except for a relatively few people, of this kind of pandemic? And... I came to the conclusion that one reason is that the thing that people remembered the most was the SARS epidemic, you know, at the beginning of this century. And the SARS epidemic, I asked people, how many people do you think got sick from it? And they'll say 100,000, 200,000, 8,000 people. The fatalities were less than 800. And so I think when this happened, people just had the model, oh, this is SARS, will be contained. So I've always been interested in surprise and how do you build resilience? You know, I've come to believe in scenarios. We did a scenario before the 2008 financial crisis about mortgages and real estate in the U.S. And people said, oh, you just wanted to put in a negative scenario. But I think it really is important to think about the outliers and how you would respond to them. And you just think of all the surprises since the beginning of this century, some very negative and some of them really quite positive. And that's, I think, a fundamental question for countries and for organizations is how do you build resilience into the system? I think in the conclusion of the book, I say there are going to be surprises and things that just seem to come from left field, but you might have caught it in your peripheral vision. But, you know, I think two constants that are going to be there for this world that I talk about in the new map, one is climate, it's just a huge central issue. And the other worrying in a different way is the clash of nations and managing that and prudently managing that is going to be the greatest geopolitical challenge in the decades ahead. So one of the things, Dan, to bring us toward the end here, you know, one of the joys uh, of, of doing research, like the kind of research you did for this book, is that you, you come across new unexpected phenomena, may spark new areas of interest. 
we're certainly very familiar with that at RFF. And so I was hoping you could say that, you know, based on your journey of this last book, what's next for Dan Jurgen? Is there another book in the works? Well, I think that we need a little time to recover from a book because you always start off thinking it's going to be, oh, this one's not going to be so hard. I'm not going to have to work day and night on it. And lo and behold, you end up doing that. But I, right now, I'm, you know, I'm, as a research topic, I'm very interested in the supply chain issues because they combine energy and geopolitics. You know, do I have another topic? I didn't have a map for the new map when I began writing the book. It sort of evolved. And I think, you know, at some point in here, I'm sure I'll get the itch again because writing books is just one of the things I like to do. And, you know, I do it in kind of an old-fashioned way, longhand. And I think writing a book for me is, in a way, I love doing narrative. And that goes back to the question and making sense. But I also see it as solving a puzzle. And I think there's going to be no shortage of puzzles in this area in which we work. And so I'm sure there's one coming. I'll just say that one reviewer criticized the book for this amazing thing. He said it wasn't long enough. I've never been criticized for writing a book that was not long enough. But I think in this Twitter age, each book needs to get a little bit shorter. For those of us readers, we appreciate that as well. I, I think many folks will say, why am I, well, I'm going to make more work for them that if, if you come out with a, a new book too soon, uh, we, we won't have fully digested your, your current one. But Dan, I want to thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. We've been able to both catch up on some of the events of the last year, but also get placed in the context of much bigger, longer term changes for the U.S. and globally. And as always, we'll be paying close attention to your analyses, your next book, but along the way, other really prescient things that you always have to say. So it's this kind of public dialogue that ultimately helps lead to a healthy environment and a thriving economy, which is what we here at RFF are working to achieve. So finally, thank you so much, Dr. Jurgen, for joining us today. Well, thank you, Richard. It was great to be here. And of course, I look forward to the continuing work by RFF. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Thank you so much. That was Richard Newell, president and CEO of Resources for the Future, in conversation with global energy expert, Daniel Jurgen. If you like what you heard, remember to like or favorite RFF's policy leadership series on your podcast platform of choice. We will release new episodes every month with leading environmental and energy policy decision makers. You also can find recordings from our Policy Leadership Series events at rff.org pls and receive updates about RFF's events and podcasts at rff.org subscribe. This episode of the Policy Leadership Series podcast was produced by John Taylor Williams. The live event was produced by Hilary Alvare, Libby Casey, and Justine Sullivan. Music is from Blue Dot Sessions. RFF podcasts are managed by me, Elizabeth Wasson, and made possible by you, our listeners. You can contribute to RFF today by visiting rff.org support. Thank you for joining us.